Now, that's a question that may well be running through your minds right now. In fact, it may have been running through your minds since you first heard about it, whether you first came in this morning, hey, we're going to be doing Revelation today, or a few weeks ago when we announced it. And some of us might be really excited as we start in on this book this morning, but I imagine there will be others of us who are thinking more along the lines of, Revelation? You sure you really want to go there? You know, given the experience of many in this book in the past, I, I can understand if we're feeling a bit, of, a bit anxious today. If you are feeling anxious as we start in on Revelation, let me just tell you now, assure you, that you are in good company. John Calvin, the famous reformer, supposedly said this of Revelation, the book of Revelation, it either finds men mad or it leaves them so. So if you come to Revelation, you either come as a madman or it will leave you in that state. Really encouraging. Spurgeon, a great 19th century Baptist preacher, said, anyone who claims to understand Revelation is a madman. So if you find Kenneth or Andrew or myself wearing our shirts back to front, climbing the walls and screaming hysterics in a few weeks' time, you'll know why. Revelation, at first glance, it can seem certainly like a pretty strange book to us in the 21st century. It's full of bizarre imagery that we are not familiar with. We have locusts the size of horses with scorpions for tails. Great beasts are rising out of seas. Strange numbers like 666 and the 144,000 who will inherit the earth. What is that about? Bottomless pits, lakes of fire and sulfur. And our fears of delving into this book are not helped by the lunatics and heretics who down the centuries have used, or should I say misused, this book to say all kinds of strange things. They've obsessed over it. That's why one preacher, I think, once said, you know, people in the church, we deal with revelation the way we often deal with the devil. We either go completely over the top about him, or we go completely to the other extreme. We just ignore anything to do with him. Well, it can be a bit like that with this book in Revelation. Well, we either go crazy about it, you say all kinds of strange things through it, or we, we just go to the complete opposite extreme and say, no, that's just really scary stuff that I couldn't possibly understand. I won't touch it. I'll leave that to someone else. But as we come to the opening verses of this book this morning, I think we're given three great reasons why we should be keen to get to grips with the message of Revelation, strange though it may be to us at first. I want us to start looking at these reasons for why we should be getting to grips with Revelation together. Come with me to the beginning, chapter 1, we'll start from verse 1. Reasons to know Revelation. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. Here's the first great reason we have to look at the book of Revelation together. God wants us to know the contents of this book. This revelation, this revealing, this revelation of Jesus Christ, his son, God wants to make known to us his purposes that he has brought in through the person and work of Jesus. That's all the word revelation actually means. It is to make known. It is to reveal something that would otherwise remain hidden. 
So if I were to turn out my pockets right now in front of you all uh, and make known their contents, that would be the revelation of Tim's pockets, just an uncovering of what's hidden. Now, I don't want to do that for your sakes. Not, I'm not sure even what's in them right now. But that's simply what the word revelation means. It's, it's to reveal something that would otherwise be hidden from us. But unlike the revelation of my pockets, this is no small or light revelation for us. It's the revelation of God, our Father. We have this chain of communication described for us here. Uh, We're told God, in verse 1, gave this revelation to his Son, the revelation of Jesus Christ, who then made it known by sending an angel to his servant John, uh, the same John who wrote the fourth gospel. You you see how he's described in verse 2, this John who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. John did see Jesus in the flesh. And at the start of his gospel, he introduces us to Jesus as the living word of God. Uh, The one who was at the Father's side, but then came to dwell and be amongst us as a human being. Who came to make his Father known to us. And so John bore witness seeing Jesus to the testimony of Jesus Christ. His witness to his Father who he was, what he did, that we might have life with God again. This change of revelation, it's for our sakes. The Father takes what is to be revealed, gives it to his Son, who gives it to an angel, who then gives it to John, who then gives it to the churches. And here we are this morning, looking at it together. So revelation is nothing less than God's intended words for us, his church. On a par with Old Testament scripture, which in certain cases was given through a similar chain of communication. God gave his law for his people to an angel who gave it to Moses, who then gave it to the people. If you're taking notes, Acts 7.53, if you want to look at that up later. So Revelation, it's a bit like that. It's God's intended word to us about Jesus, and it's revealed for us. So we can't just excuse ourselves from it because it seems strange and unfamiliar and difficult to understand. No, instead, as we take revelation and understand it and take it to heart, we're told we will be blessed. That's the second great reason we have for getting to grips with revelation this morning. God promises to bless those who take hold of it. Have a look in chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. Isn't that wonderful? Revelation is the only book in Scripture that carries this great promise. Do you want to be blessed by God? Well, then take hold of this book. Read it. Listen to it. Get to grips with it. Maybe as we just start out in this series here at SMAC, maybe we could be thinking about the ways in which we can spend more time in Revelation, even outside of our Sunday morning gatherings. Why not listen, download an MP3 version uh, and listen to it on the way to work in the car or uh, when you're working out in the gym. Set, Set aside a bit of time during the week to prepare for our Sunday. In fact, on our bulletins, we actually put what we're going to be covering the following week. We, we put that there so that you can actually see that information and then read, and, uh, read the verses and prepare for what we'll be looking at the following Sunday. 
Because blessed are those who hear. But not just are those blessed who are here, but those who keep what is written in it. It's not just about hearing the words. We come with the intention to keep what's written in it. So it's, it's much like medicine. It, it, medicine won't help us as all, if all we do is take the bottle and we just read the label. No, you have to ingest it. You have to allow it to do its work. Well, so with this word, we mustn't just merely read it, but allow it to change our attitudes and desires. It would be a great thing to pray for as we start out in this book, that we would be conformed more and more to God's will as he speaks to us by this word. Would you pray that, not just for yourself, but for all of us here at SMAC, including myself and Andrew and Kenneth as we seek to teach it faithfully, which is not an easy task, particularly with Revelation. But did you notice, though, this blessing, it's tied up with something in particular about this revelation. Have a look again in verse 3. Let me just emphasize it. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. The time is near. And much like what we were told just earlier in verse 1, this is a revelation about the things that must soon take place. Now, we're not told what these things are at this point. It's just the introduction. But we are told one thing about them. They are not far away. No, revelation comes to us with a great sense of immediacy. So the third reason we have for getting to grips with this letter is that it concerns the things of the present. Life in the here and now. You see, John is choosing his words very carefully in this opening uh, statement to make that clear to his first readers. Because they knew their Old Testaments really well. And in particular, they knew the the book of Daniel, what we had read in our Old Testament reading. Daniel, well, like John, he received incredible visions of the future. Visions concerning things that were to come after Daniel's day. And much of the language, as we will see in Revelation, it's drawn from that part of the Old Testament. As we understand that part of the Old Testament, we understand the symbols of Revelation. But the key thing that we saw in Daniel 12, let me just remind you, God says to him concerning these visions in 12 verse 4, But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Shut up the words, seal the book. God says, Daniel, what you're seeing, what I'm showing you, is for something way in the future. So, so you're not to do much with it in the present. Seal up the vision. It's not for your generation. It's for some time in the future. But here in Revelation, John is actually told to do the very opposite. We, we read and we will see eventually an angel tells him in Revelation 22.10, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. And hence those who read aloud the words of this prophecy now will be blessed. It's, it's not to be sealed up for some later generation. Now, when I was about 15, I got hooked on these really exciting uh, books. Uh, I don't know if you recognize this. Uh, I think they were big in Malaysia. They were certainly big in the UK. The Left Behind series, back in, I think, the late 90s, they came out. There's 12 of them all together. And what they are, it's, it's a 12-volume fictional depiction of what Revelation, as far as these authors are concerned, might be alluding to. But, but all of the events in this long, exciting series of left-behind books, all the events that they depict belong to a time that are in our future. 
They, they describe a period of great tribulation which occurs in the last few years before the return of Christ. So these books actually imply, and they did for me when I was younger, they imply that this word, revelation, it's only really useful for the generation that just happens to be living during the time of Christ's return. I used to believe that. Having read all these books, we get really excited about them. Revelation, it's, it's all about the very end of history. The first, uh, the last few years before Christ returns. It's this amazing, intricate code that we have to break down as we see certain events unfold in our world today. So we can get a bit of a better idea of when Jesus might actually come back. Even though Jesus, of course, in the gospel said no one knows that time. See, that's an error, it's an error that people have made when handling revelation in the past. It's a code for us to break with our newspapers, and it's describing actual events that are way, 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 way off in the future. Quite possibly removed from our own day, certainly removed from John's day. But John shows us in these opening words that that just can't be the case. No, this revelation, it concerns for him all the way back in the first century, things that must soon take place. The time is near. Friends, don't buy into the mistake that revelation is reserved for the last generation of Christians in this world. No, it concerns the things that are taking place in the here and the now. It is intensely practical for us, even as it describes realities in a symbolic way. So, here, three good reasons why we should be getting to grips with Revelation as we start out over the next few weeks. God wants us to know this revealed word. God will bless us as we take this revelation to heart. And God says that this revelation, it applies to the here and now. It is practical for our day. So, with those encouragements in mind, let's look at this opening greeting as the message begins in verse 4. Because it gives us a bit of a preview, a taster of what's to come in the rest of the letter. Come with me to verse 4. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia. To the seven churches that are in Asia. So first of all, as you'd expect in any greeting, the recipients are addressed. These seven churches in what we know today to be ancient Asia Minor. It's kind of modern-day Turkey. Uh, What we need to bear in mind, though, here, even with this opening greeting, is that John is writing in a particular style that we are very unfamiliar with normally today. It's what we call apocalyptic literature. became really popular about the 2nd century BC, 200 years before Christ walked the earth, to the 200 uh, 200 AD, 200 years after he was born, that 400-year period. And in this kind of literature, numbers are, for the most part, symbolic John's message is to seven churches in Asia. But actually, we know that there were at least ten churches in Asia Minor at the time of John's writing. This number seven that we're going to see throughout Revelation, it symbolizes wholeness, completeness. So so as John addresses these seven real geographical churches in the first century, he is symbolically addressing the whole church in every age. Now, we're going to learn more about these seven churches in the coming weeks, but it's worth just us just taking a little sneak peek at their situation now. It'll help us to understand the situation Revelation is written into. And these churches, they are facing all kinds of issues. There are those who are suffering severely for their faith in Christ. 
they are persecuted and alienated. We'll actually see one martyr who has died for the faith named in chapter 2. And some feel like they are just about to give up. They can't take the pressures of living for Jesus in the world anymore. Some who were at one time on fire for God and his gospel, they now just have seemed to completely lose their edge. You know, they're still around, they're they're still at church from, from time to time, but they would struggle to say that Jesus is still their first love, the Lord that they are living for. Some are actually in real danger of falling back into the sins of the world, compromising their faith completely, rejecting Christ as Lord. So this letter is addressed to a church that is in dire need of encouragement. Encouragement to soldier on faithfully with Jesus as Lord. I think that's really helpful for us to understand, isn't it? Because in many ways, I think we can often feel the same, can't we? We face all sorts of opposition to our faith today. I mean, some of us here know even too well what it is like to have the sword come to us for our faith in Christ. But for many of us who are not even suffering physically or have not in the past, we're no doubt tempted instead in that inner struggle in our hearts by the, the desires of the world out there that would allure us away from our, our love for Jesus. You know, maybe we're struggling with a lukewarm love for Jesus right now. We know that there's that habit of me just lying when it's convenient in the moment. And I know that doesn't belong to the life that I now have in Christ, but it's, it's still very much a habit in my life. Maybe those lustful images that we struggle really not to look for and look to from day to day. Or that misplaced love of money or popularity. Actually, I'm, I'm, I say I'm living for Jesus, but really, I really do care about what everybody else thinks of me. Habits that can, after much time, just drain our faith and our joy in Jesus as Lord. Well, friends, do know, just as we start out in this letter this morning, that whatever sin, whatever failing, whatever struggle that seems to blight your ability to know and enjoy God's great love for you, and the power of his transforming grace in your life, if you trust in Jesus, God's will is for you to overcome anything that threatens your love for him. And this book is amongst his means to do just that. It's addressed to his real struggling church, struggling in so many different ways, so that they might, we might, overcome and endure in faith. Even in this opening greeting, we actually start to see God's encouragement to us, his people. During the Rwandan genocide back in 1994, there was this hotel. It was owned by a French company, but it was run mostly by a local group of Rwandans. This was back in the 1990s. And as the, as the crisis, the Rwandan genocide began, all the international staff, the minute it started to happen, they were evacuated. Uh, leaving behind the the local helpers who were to continue running the hotel in the absence of the foreign staff. Uh, So, of course, the newly promoted manager of this hotel, he was a Rwandan himself, and he had to support and motivate a staff of 100 local Rwandan uh, workers as their country literally fell apart uh, around them. And most of the workers, of course, they sadly did one of two things. In the light of the crisis... They, they either became really lazy 
and uncaring. They, they, they stole beer from the hotel kitchens. They moved into the best rooms themselves and ignored the guests completely. And others were just overcome with fear of what might happen to them in the light of the violence outside. So either way, this manager had a great struggle in motivating them to have hope and keep on working in the midst of that crisis. So what he did, he contacted the head office back in Paris that owned this whole hotel chain, and he, he, he asked the CEO for a letter. And it came through on the facts, and then he took the letter, and he showed it to the hotel staff. And as soon as they saw and read that letter, they got back on. They just got back to work. It's as if the, it's as if the crisis had just faded away. And there's two reasons why they believe that letter was so powerful. The first one, it came with incredible authority. Uh, the CEO, he had signed it himself in his own pen. It was printed on his private office paper from Paris. And this was a powerful guy. And the staff, the local Rwanda staff, they couldn't believe it. For, for us, a hotel in Rwanda, this guy's taken the time to write this personal letter of encouragement to us. So it came with great authority. But it also came, secondly, with great assurance for them. CEO, a powerful man, he had personally promised in this letter, I will ensure your protection till the end of this crisis. All you need to do is carry on with your work and you will be safe. But he also attached a warning. For those of you who take advantage of this and slack off and make it harder for the rest, well, there will be a recompense for that. You will be punished. And in the light of that letter, that was just more than enough of an encouragement for the workers to get on. A message of great authority, a message of incredible assurance. And that, in many ways, is what we have in this opening greeting. It's a message of great authority, first of all. Have a look in verse 4b. As John starts speaking on behalf of Christ and God. Grace to you and peace from him who is, who was, and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. This could be described as the letterhead of Revelation. It tells us without a doubt who is this message from. And how powerful they really are. He who, who is uh, uh, and who was and who is to come, speaking primarily here of God the Father on his throne with his great unchangeable characters and purposes that cannot be thwarted. So these words of assurance, of grace and peace, they carry the highest authority from the one who is before and above and sustains everything. What an encouragement for a struggling people to know that this is God's personal letter from his throne room, from where he's ruling over everything. Uh, And as we will see, it's going to reveal for us God's perspective on all of history. It's going to help us understand as his people what are his purposes, even as on those days when it appears everything is falling apart. What are his purposes? Before his throne, we're told are the seven spirits. Now remember what the seven symbolize? See if you're listening. Wholeness. Yeah, that's right. Wholeness, completeness. So the wholeness of the Spirit of God, who sees to God's will in his world, is before his throne. Uh, God, with all his authority, is not impotent. He's not like a great king who has no practical power. No, he is working actively by his Spirit. 
And but the emphasis on authority here, it's not that of the Father or the Spirit, but rather on the Son. In fact, he just dominates the rest of this opening greeting. In terms of authority, and in general terms, who is Jesus? It's the most important question of our lives. Well, he's given three titles here. Verse 5, from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth. So first of all, the faithful witness, because Jesus is the only man who has faithfully witnessed to the way our world truly is, both in his words and in his deeds. We've all been created by God to do his will, as much as many in our world want to deny that. And yet Jesus, in his words and deeds, testified to that and also did that will perfectly. He alone lived a life free of any kind of rebellion against God that we are guilty of in our sin. Never faltered, even to the point of death. So he witnessed perfectly to his will, to the will of his Father. But secondly, he is the firstborn amongst the dead. What an encouragement to Christians who are dying for their faith, as we will see, and all of the other struggles they're facing, to know that as they stood to lose their lives for Jesus as Lord, that he himself has conquered death in his own body and risen to incorruptible life. And he will grant that same life to all who would remain steadfast in him. What an encouragement to persevere. Finally, he is the ruler of the kings on earth. And that may find, we might find that really hard to believe at times. We see the decisions that our nation's rulers make even today, the things that they try to affect. It's a great encouragement, isn't it, that we're told by God Jesus is ultimately in charge. He has authority over all the rulers of this world. They're in his hands, Najib, Cameron, Abbott, even Obama, who's here with us in Malaysia today. Jesus is Lord over them. And they cannot do one thing outside of his sovereign control. So whatever we might have to endure in this world as his people, Revelation is going to continually assure us, look, Jesus is in charge. Ultimately, don't be anxious. He is far above the powers that seek to influence our world every day. So this greeting, it comes to us with the highest authority, but as we've seen, it comes with great assurance as well. God, in all his great power, is for us, his people. John just bursts out in praise in verse 5, the rest of verse 5. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us as a kingdom priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Friends, if we know Jesus as Lord today, we have that promise that God is no longer our enemy. No, he's freed us from the penalty of our sins, all the ways in which we've failed to live rightly. And how has he done it? By the perfect blood of his precious son, given to die on that cross in our place. So we can be forgiven. We can be reconciled. We can have certain friendship with the God that, was, that made us to know and enjoy him. And because Jesus defeated death at the cross and rose again and was exalted to the highest authority, John can say at the end of this praise, well, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever, amen. 
But did you notice what we're called in verse 6 as those who have been caught up in that great salvation that Jesus has done for us? Again, verse 6, he's made us a kingdom. He has made us priests to his God and Father. What's a priest? Well, in Anglicanism, we sometimes call our pastors priests, don't we? Uh, that's actually a shortening word. In, in Anglican uh, uh, dogma, it's a shortening of the word presbyter, which in our Bibles is translated elder. So, so it is, in a sense, a biblical category for church leadership. But it can be a bit confusing. Because using priest in that way, to stand for presbyter, elder, that's entirely different from the way the word priest is meant when we read it in the Bible. Now, in the Bible, a priest is someone who speaks to God on behalf of men and speaks to men on behalf of God. And so in that sense, all of us who belong to Jesus are priests. All of us have equal access to speak to our Heavenly Father because of what Jesus has done. So each of us can pray to him. And all of us have a priestly duty to make known what God has done for us in Christ to make that known to others so that they would share in it. Urging people to know, understand, and live for Jesus. And that's part of our worship to him. As we live out these words of verse 6, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever, amen. Because one day, everyone's going to recognize Jesus as king. Verse 7, behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. One day, Jesus' kingship is going to be unquestionable in everybody's eyes as this world quivers in fear at God's chosen king returning that they rejected in sin. And all the tribes of the earth, as we read, will wail, will mourn on account of him on the day of his return. We're going to see that day depicted in incredible ways in this book. But for now, friends, just in the light of what we read here of who we are, we're, 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 we're God's kingdom of priests to our Heavenly Father. Can we be about that as we start this series? Can we be living out our priestly duty to others? You see, Revelation is a very attractive book, very often for non-Christians. There's a reason why that Left Behind series I showed you earlier, it sold 15 million copies. And I can't believe that all of those copies were read by, not, uh, by Christians. It's very attractive to our world as well. More importantly, Revelation reveals Jesus. Who he is and what he's done by this book. And so it reveals to us why it's worth trusting in him and living for him no matter what. So be thinking. Who can I bring down next week as we continue in the book of Revelation? Think about your friends, your family, your neighbors. Who do I know? Who do I have contact with who do not yet see Jesus as Lord? Think about who you could invite. Pray that God would use our time together in Revelation to bring them into the kingdom of his son. Let's be about our priestly duty as we continue in this series. So as we've looked at this opening greeting... It's a taste of what's to come in Revelation. We've seen it's a message addressed to the seven churches, a struggling church for them and for us, for our empowerment. It's a message of the greatest authority. It comes from God's throne room. 
So what is described here, it has and it will come to pass without question. It's a message of assurance. Jesus is the Lord of all glory. And if we trust in his saving blood, then we belong to his kingdom. And that kingdom's going to outlast all the corruption of this world. It's where we want to be. So we started today by asking that question. Why study Revelation? And in the light of what we've covered, I think a better question is, why on earth would we not want to study this message together as God's people? Especially in the light of this final verse. Look in verse 8. Jesus, for the first time, he addresses us directly as his church. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God. The Alpha, the first, the, the Omega, the last letters of the Greek alphabet. Jesus is the Alpha. He's the first. He's the one who began all things. And he's the Omega, the last. Through him, all things are going to find their end. History belongs to Jesus. He is Lord in every sense. And for us who recognize him, his father has given us this revelation, this revealing of him, so we can know him better as Lord who died for us, so we can persevere in our love for him. In the midst of a world that we live in every day that tells us, don't live for Jesus, live for this, live for that, live for this. But not every day, because one day he will return. And revelation is God's means to keep us going strong as his people in faith until that day when his kingdom is known in all its fullness. So let me pray now that that would be the case, that God would help us to go strong in revelation together in the coming weeks. Let's pray. Father, We thank you that despite the the strange nature of this word as we will see and that it can seem a very unfamiliar and daunting word, it is a word from you and it reveals to us, your church, more of your son and what it means to be members of his kingdom. We pray that you would, by your grace, strengthen us to endure for him as we continue in this series of revelation together. Help us to be really getting to grips to it, with it. Help us to think of all those ways in which we can be familiarizing ourselves with your message of revelation to us, both on a Sunday and during the week, that we would be equipped to endure. We would know your, both your great power in our lives and the great assurance that you have granted us by your Son. We would know those things closely, and so we would know and love and obey him all the more as we see that day approaching. We ask these things for Jesus' sake. Amen.